0: That's BlueNile.com.
1: The History Channel original podcast.
2: With 303 locations across the country, it almost feels like there's a TGI Fridays in every town in America. Doesn't matter if you're in Rancho Cucamonga, California, or Royal Palm Beach, Florida— if you're looking for potato skins and a signature slush, there's some with your name on it. And you won't have to go far. As someone like historian Jason Liebig knows, it's not exactly considered fine dining.
3: It's easy to dismiss them. I mean they are these sort of innocuous throwaway, this idea of this middle America restaurant that it's just such a chain, it's just it's a little crass, it's a little corny.
2: But believe it or not, TGI Fridays is more important than its cheesy reputation would suggest.
3: TGI Fridays has this significant cultural impact, which is lost on most people. It changed the way we go to bars. It changed the way single people mingle. It certainly changed the way, you know, men and women met at bars. There was nothing like it before TGI Fridays.
2: Before it was ubiquitous, before it had even developed any sort of reputation at all, TGI Friday's was a novelty. Just one restaurant in the hippest corner of Manhattan. And that one lone restaurant, it was a much different kind of place. This is Valerie Lomas. She's a food writer who won the Great American Baking Show.
0: So I think Alan Stillman was onto something with creating this kind of casual dining bar hybrid situation. If he wanted a place to meet women that wasn't as intimidating as a bar with, you know, stiff drinks, I think he really did that. And it kind of created this whole culture around happy hour as a place for singles to come together, meet other single folks and just find somebody to go out with.
2: That's right, TGI Fridays was once a singles bar. That's today. This is the food that built America. Stories of innovation, taste, and good eats. Today, we'll tell you the story of the meteoric rise of TGI Fridays, and how a lonely perfume salesman shepherded in an entire culture of casual dining. It's an unlikely story of ingenuity, and how important it is to strike when inspiration hits. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. Nowadays, we hardly think twice about casual dining. Surely you, at some point, have gone out for drinks with a couple of friends or coworkers at, say, 5 p.m., ordered a plate of fries for the table. But in the middle of the 20th century, this just didn't happen. And not just because the expression happy hour didn't really exist, It's because bars as we know them today didn't really exist either. Let's go back in time, back to the 1960s. The world was changing. Suddenly there was the advent of the lava lamp, the Sharpie, White Out. It's a mad, mad, mad world out there. Starting with the number of single people living away from their parents. Culture writer Shelby Slower says that in the 1960s, Manhattan's east side between 30th and 90th streets was kind of a place to be.
1: The Upper East Side in the 1960s in Manhattan was kind of a hotbed for models, secretaries, stewardesses, just really a lot of young singles who often had a lot of roommates because of how expensive the rent was.
2: All those people living in one place made the neighborhood kind of the place to be.
1: So it was an up and coming neighborhood where you know you had a lot of young people and at the time in culture, there still wasn't a lot of places for young women, especially, but young singles to go out and be able to uh, meet each other and gather. So in the 1960s, there was kind of this sexual revolution.
2: The sexual revolution really changed the landscape of the world, changed how people mingled. That's what Slauer says.
1: So in 1960, GD Cyril & Company developed a product known as Innovid, which was better known as the world's first oral contraceptive. So this brought about a period in which young people held off marriage a bit more and experimented with casual sex and relationships outside of heteronormative monogamy. So it brought about more of a desire for nightlife and wanting to go out and experience society in a way that didn't really exist so much at that time.
2: So they wanted to go out and meet people. But where could they go? Remember what I said? Bars were different back then. In fact, most women didn't go to bars at all. At time, the social event du jour was private cocktail parties. If you wanted to let loose, that's where you would go to do it. He didn't dare do it in public. In fact, some places wasn't even legal.
1: So there were these protests at that time in which members of the National Organization of Women were fighting for just the legality of being able to go to bars.
2: There are a couple of reasons for this. Nightlife specifically was different at the time.
1: With all this change that was happening, there was still this parochial sense of decorum that held a lot of sway over American society. Especially in the early 1960s, women just essentially never went out alone.
2: But when they did go out, wasn't really out on the town.
1: And the most popular places to go out were fast food joints, diners, coffee shops, or formal white tablecloth restaurants. So you just didn't really have a nightlife scene for women at this time. And respectable women would never be seen at bars, which were seen as dark and seedy places for men to drink beer, essentially.
2: This wasn't very conducive to meeting people. Not only were you accompanied by a man, these places with starchy tablecloths and greasy fast food weren't exactly romantic joints. Not really the right mood.
1: So these places that women were allowed to go to weren't really conducive to meeting new people and flirting.
2: So where were all the men while the women were off drinking in private? Sitting in dimly lit bars that doled out frosty pints of beer with smoke that hung in the air, sawdust covered the floors. Sounds divey, and maybe not in a fun way. These bars were kind of dingy, dirty, and unkept. Liebig says the vibe wasn't just unfriendly to women. Bars themselves actually were unfriendly to women, too. Some of them
3: actually banned
2: women. They were bars for men to go and
3: blow off steam for men to go and make darkroom deals, backroom deals, and it was not a place where you found women. And certainly not a place where a woman would feel safe going into by yourself or even with a group of friends.
2: Enter Alan Stillman, a perfume salesman. One day, bellied up to his favorite bar, The Good Tavern.
1: So The Good Tavern is one of these bars that bans women, and it's actually Alan Stillman's local haunt.
2: Stillman loved that bar, and he would have loved someone to sit there with.
1: So Alan Stillman is a single guy.
3: I mean, to to not be too crass, he's looking for love, you know, or at least looking for short-term love, even if
2: it isn't forever love. One thing was for sure, he wasn't finding it at the Good Tavern. Stillman would have to meet women somewhere else. Remember, this is before Bumble or eHarmony, back when Tinder only referred to something you'd use at a campfire.
3: And so as Alan Stillman tells it, you know, as the week would go on, you would start to line up the cocktail parties you'd be going to attend. So you'd be, oh, we're going to go to this one. There's this, this stewardess is throwing a party, you know, at her building on Thursday night at 7.30. So we're going to check out that and we're going to check out this. So that's how you would bounce from cocktail party to cocktail party, trying to find, you know, women, if you were a guy. And if you're a woman, I guess, you know, you'd be with your friends at one of these parties hoping to meet a man.
2: Stillman basically spent his time selling perfume, buying beer at the Good Tavern, and going to those cocktail parties Slower told us about.
1: But at the same time, he wants more. He dreams of kind of a space where young women would feel comfortable to go to a bar so that he could hopefully meet some of them.
2: Over a beer, Stillman started telling the bartender the ways he'd changed the bar to invite more women in.
3: He's telling his bartender at his local place, uh, you know, you should really brighten this place up.
2: He had big dreams for the place. He was imagining the ways he'd improve it.
3: He wanted a place where you could go and hang out and have a drink and talk to someone you've never met before. And so he had this idea of this sort of prototypical uh, singles bar idea and image, making it welcoming, making it brighter, making it friendly, and making it
2: feel safe for women to go into. One night he was back at his spot at the bar making more suggestions on bar decor to the bartender.
1: So he's there one night and he takes a look around the environment and he just starts making suggestions to the bartender that he could clean the place up, add some Tiffany-style lamps, and the bartender just responds, why don't you do it?
2: With those five words, why don't you do it, the bartender unknowingly changed the course of bar history. Stillman took it into consideration, did the math, realized he could actually buy the bar outright.
1: So he decides to buy the place. So with a $5,000 loan from his mother, he purchases the Good Tavern, not knowing that this purchase would later become a $2 billion empire.
2: Yeah, you heard that right. He borrowed money from his mom to open a bar to meet ladies. It's hard not to respect the hustle.
1: So the idea was just to create a really fun experience, put on a show and allow people a safe space, a safe public space to have a good time.
2: Suddenly the perfume salesman was entering a whole new industry.
1: So here's this single guy selling essential oils who just decides to buy a bar so that he can meet women, probably doesn't know anything about women or bar ownership. And everything just works out to a T.
2: It was kind of an accidental success, especially for someone with absolutely no restaurant or bar experience. That said, Stillman had his work cut out for him. First step? Decorating, of course. He started bringing in, you know, they, they called them
3: fern bars because he literally brought in ferns and plants.
1: So he takes the bar, he adorns it with shiny brass rails, framed photos, Tiffany-style lamps, and bentwood chairs. He puts up a red and white awning outside and enlists some friends to paint the facade baby blue. All these things he thinks will attract single women.
2: Baby blue. Who knew? With all those nice lamps and baby blue exterior figured out, Stillman had to figure out what to serve to the co-ed clientele. Enter bar snacks. Neilo Motamed is a global culinary expert.
1: So one of the things he did is he made burgers that were on English muffins so that it would feel like something you might have at a cocktail party. So he was creating an environment uh, which has actually
0: obviously perpetuated in a big way in all of the restaurants and bars in the city where it's your home away from home, your living room that you don't have the space for because you live in Manhattan.
2: Next up, drinks. Stillman wanted to expand beyond beer on tap. So he introduced sweet, strong drinks. Drinks that were brightly colored. Drinks you drink on a beach.
3: In the past, before this, they were sort of vacation drinks. You know, you would expect to get an exotic drink when you went to New Orleans and when you went to Hawaii, when you went to one of these experiential places. But what TGI Fridays started to offer was this sort of experience like you're stepping away. So it really was this sort of vacation-like experience from the drink perspective, from the alcohol perspective, and also the decor. So the whole place, the drinks themselves, represented this sort of escapism a little bit, if you will. And it's a lot of sweet, a lot of sugar, and usually a heavy pour.
2: So we had decor, food, and drinks, but no name yet. Slower has that story.
1: So the name of the bar actually came about when Stillman was on a skiing trip with friends. He took a tumble. And when he climbed out of the snowbank, he said, thank God it's Friday. We have two days to recover. And his friend responded saying, that would actually be a great name for your bar. And he was like, I think you're right. So that's how it got its iconic name.
2: It was a hit. Super trendy off the bat.
1: So the Upper East Side becomes probably the best place Stillman can launch his project.
2: Remember what we heard about all those women living between 30th and 90th? That would end up being really great news for our friend, Alan Stillman.
1: So this neighborhood is a hotbed for models, secretaries, and especially stewardesses that needed easy access to New York's bridges. And oftentimes stewardesses were traveling so often that they would have anywhere from four to five roommates. There were a lot of women living with roommates at this time because the rent costs were so high. And of course, all of these young women and these single people wanted to go out just like everybody else. So when Stillman starts his bar, it becomes instantly the most popular place to go on a Friday night.
2: It's kind of genius. The place was an instant hit and super trendy. So trendy, in fact, velvet ropes were needed to corral the crowd. That's right, velvet ropes for a TGI Fridays. Like I said, it was a mad, 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 mad world.
1: So TGI Fridays kind of starts a revolution. Immediately in that same area, two other bars open up and they also become so popular from 8 p.m. to midnight because there were so many young single people running back and forth all night.
2: It was the 1960s version of a pub crawl. Brilliant.
1: So in cleaning up this bar, he actually unknowingly created the world's first singles bar, which basically became every bar that we know today.
2: Of course, there were a few hiccups along the way. The perfume salesman turned bar boss was learning as he went,
1: So Stillman runs into a number of growing pains pretty quickly. The bar is instantly too packed, the place is too crowded, and the food is coming out too slowly.
2: These were problems that felt like good things. Too many people, too much foot traffic. But they weren't great for business. Luckily, these were problems with easy solutions.
1: So Stillman immediately increases the bartender count from one to three. He removes some of the stools so that people can more easily access the bar. And he tries to make the place less crowded so that waiters have the space to walk around. Stillman redesigns the food menu to only include items that can be prepared more quickly so that the food comes out faster.
2: Slowly, TGI Fridays was becoming the TGI Fridays we know and love today.
1: So, in removing some of these unnecessary steps from the cocktails, it helps you know people move along faster, and it contributes to this idea that is more commonplace in nightlife today—that uh, a bartender is more of you know a traffic controller than a delicate craftsman—in a lot of He doesn't even know that he's started a revolution and created the first Singles Bar.
2: But other people saw what was going on. How could they not? What with all that velvet rope? And they wanted a piece of the pub house pie.
1: So copycats begin swarming the Upper East Side. So this epicenter of bars now becomes the place to be for Singles. By 1966, Newsweek reports that locals call the area the Body Exchange, and two years later, New York Magazine calls it the Fertile Crescent.
2: And this idea of a singles bar was kind of going viral.
3: And within a year or two, the people were talking about TGI Fridays, you know, so it was being talked about. And then... This idea of this singles bar, what it can be, the model had been created because it didn't exist before. Now that the model was created, it could be copied. And the quickest measure of his success was how much it was being copied by other people.
2: Meanwhile, Stillman kept his head down, focused on his burgeoning business.
1: Stillman is kind of concentrating on creating this one perfect experience and he's really happy with his one bar money machine he's not really thinking of expanding or doing things outside of that at this time
2: but other people had big ideas for him and those ideas would change the country that's next So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
4: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: When we last left Stillman and TGI Fridays, he was managing his successful bar in Manhattan. Then in 1971, he met a man named Dan Scoggin. He was a businessman, the kind of guy who knew what he wanted and got it. And he wanted TGI Fridays.
1: So Dan Scoggin is a manager at a construction manufacturing company with business experience and connections. He encounters TGI Fridays in 1971, and he's impressed.
2: But he saw room for improvement.
1: He thinks the food isn't great, the decor is kind of basic, and the bar design isn't great.
2: Scoggin had some ideas.
3: He goes, okay, the bar, I don't like the bar up against the wall. He says, the food is not very good. You know, the layout could be more open. He sees the opportunities, the decor is kind of crap. And so he sees places where he goes, I can change this. I can make this better. You know, we won't have to spend a lot of money, but we can improve this very cost effectively. So he sees these sort of, he sort of lists it out and knows he can make these improvements. And all
2: of a sudden he sees where there's going to be money to be made after that little list of improvements can be made. But it wasn't just the food and drinks that he wanted to improve. He wanted more than one restaurant. He had his eye on Dallas. Why? Dr. Carrie Lattimore is an associate professor of history at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas.
5: You have suburbs in Dallas, but you also have industries that are moving to Dallas and, and centering their hubs around Dallas. And you've got oil, too, that's going to be centered around there. And you've got a lot of money coming into Dallas
2: Texas in the early 70s was really changing, kind of a microcosm for the rest of the country. And with all that new industry and money came new young people.
5: Young singles. And so you got a vibrancy in Dallas that creates some excitement, but it also gives you people that are willing to spend money on things, to go out. You know, dating is possible. You need places to go out. And so... Travel is becoming more available to people, so you need airlines to take you from one place to the other. And so Dallas is emerging as a space and a hub that has these opportunities for young people.
2: Around this time, the state was also changing its liquor laws. That ushered in a brand new era of cocktails.
5: For the first time in 50 years, restaurants can now serve their own mixed drinks. And so your restaurant is changing. It's not just a place that you go to eat, but you can just go there and have a drink. You can go there with your friends and just have a drink. So for young people, that's a
2: big deal. Imagine being served alcohol in a restaurant with your dinner. It was an entirely new phenomenon in Texas.
5: You know, it's just very inconvenient to bring your own bottle of whiskey to a restaurant, or your bottle of champagne to a restaurant, but it's something about it, I guess, of being served alcohol in a restaurant, especially, I think, for younger people.
2: Stoggins looked around at all this growth, both in the liquor industry and in the influx of young people, and in them he saw an opportunity. And he
3: looks at it and he says, okay. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this and I'm going to build these franchises out. and I'm going to see what can be done here. And he's the guy who starts to make the changes that would ultimately start to transform TGI Fridays.
2: So on January 28th, 1972, Texas's TGI Fridays opened its doors.
1: The place becomes an instant hit. Young people are lining the sidewalk to get in. And the exotic menu and the fun, colorful cocktails that TGI Friday's sells just attract a number of customers.
2: This new Texas location looked a little different than the Manhattan one, though. This looked a little more like how Scoggin wanted it to look. For one, he redesigned the decor, out with the old, in with the new. And he starts to put the... The sort of tchotchkes and the signages on the wall, which becomes a
3: trademark of TGI Fridays in the coming decades. And he really opens it up and allows it to be just a space that works a lot better. And it also works better in a larger scale as well.
2: Then he turned to the bar itself. This one looked more like a U shape and closer to the center of the room so people could walk right up and order a drink. That made it easier to see other people and for the bartender to see you.
3: So he creates a flow and where people can sort of go around. And the bar is now in the center space, which becomes a much more freeing space where people can talk and move. You see bars in the middle now
2: all over the place. The bar's location encouraged people to get up and move around.
1: So with the bar in the center, people circling uh, to meet someone they know or don't know becomes known as doing a lap.
2: Also kind of changed the way the patrons interacted with the bartenders.
3: So they were really these sort of almost like alcohol puppet masters, you know. So it wasn't so much that a drink was perfect. These were not mixologists. These were mingleologists, if
2: you will. (laughs) These bartenders weren't just pulling on a tap from behind the bar. These bartenders were entertainers.
3: These guys were meant to go out and liven up the crowd, a little bit like a modern DJ does. So they really worked the crowd. And undoubtedly, the single ones were probably meeting a lot of the women as well, which is also why Alan Stillman was bartending from time to time
2: at his own place. Suddenly, going to this TGI Fridays felt like it was a whole night out, says Joanna Saltz, who's the editorial director at Delish.com and House Beautiful.
4: TGI Fridays was the first of its kind in that it was a restaurant that felt like an experience. You went to restaurants because they had a culinary point of view, or they were from a certain area of the world. But TGR Fridays, it felt like a party. And it was the first time that a restaurant ever really had that feeling.
2: The Dallas location was a pioneer in a changing era of casual dining. It shifted the idea of what dinner could be. And it was a success, such a success, in fact, that profits at the Dallas location were reportedly triple what they were in Manhattan. Long gone were the days of starchy tablecloths and reheated coffee. Bars were the place to be. And more and more couples were meeting each other at a bar. It should come as no surprise that, following TGI Friday's success, the copycats showed up. In 1972, Ruby Tuesdays opened shop in Tennessee. Three years later, Chili's opened in Dallas, too. Bold! Then, in 1976, a Bennigan's opened in Atlanta. Everyone was looking for a place to grab a sweet drink, meet some singles.
0: You know, I think a lot of restaurants like the Olive Garden, Applebee's, Benihana's, they probably owe a lot of their existence to TGI Fridays because they started this dining, casual, bar, whole hybrid atmosphere. And they did it so well that it was only natural that other restaurants were gonna follow. And they just kind of tweaked the formula a little bit. You know, tweak the type of food that's served. Serve casual Italian and you've got the Olive Garden.
2: Meanwhile, TGI Fridays was getting bigger too. By 1975, there were 12 across nine states. Carlson Companies, a huge hospitality company, wanted in and acquired that company. With that, Stillman departed and opened his own high-end steakhouse, Smith & Walensky. It was up to Scoggin to steer the happy hour ship, and he keeps tweaking the model.
3: The restaurant stays the same, but... It stays familiar, and yet these little changes to change with the times, but also where they see where they're making improvements, they figure out ways to make improvements within the model.
2: One of the ways Scoggin wanted to improve was by basically creating a consistency across restaurants. So he
3: applies that to how the servers serve, how the bartenders bartend, so that when you go to a a TGI Fridays in midtown Manhattan, you're getting the same experience as when you go into one in Omaha, Nebraska you're getting that TGI Fridays experience.
2: This included a concept referred to as courtesy control.
3: It's almost like when baseball players have their fundamentals, you know, yes, they're still star players, but they need to go work on their batting practice. So it's getting to with his, with his help, with his servers, with his bartenders, and just saying, listen, getting together with them and, and implementing a series of controls and checks to make sure that everyone's staying on
2: point. And probably some incentives as well. It was an attempt to keep up morale and break free from the inevitable service industry burnout.
3: And so it creates these ideas that we have parodied, you know, with things like flair, you know, you have to have flair, and you have to have a smile, you know, and you always have to say, as soon as someone walks in the door,
2: you have to always look them in the eye. These changes helped shape TGI Friday's identity as a peppy, consistent restaurant that they've kept to this day. And by 1984, there were more than 90 locations across the country course, it wasn't good enough just to grow the business and standardize the customer service. Scoggin wanted to expand his own menu. That's when he brought in the ace in the hole, loaded potato skins. Who could imagine such a thing? So pair off, because right now it's Friday's two for 20 time. Everyone looks forward to Friday. TGI Fridays has introduced gourmet pizzas, and I have just the way to show them to you. Great combinations like... Food like pizza and potato skins became, perhaps, the bridge to what TGI Fridays would become. A place for everyone. Fun for the whole family.
1: So they expand the menu to include now iconic items such as loaded potato bites and just really make it a fun themed restaurant that families can enjoy.
2: With this, Scoggins steered his happy hour ship straight into the suburbs.
3: So what Scoggins ultimately does is he brings TGI Fridays out of the urban and into the suburb. And he changes it in small ways that ultimately make it more welcoming now, not just to single people, but also now to families. It starts to hit middle America. And TGI Fridays becomes what we know it as, as this sort of middle American, a bit corny, but very big business where people bring their kids out to have potato skins on a you know on a Saturday afternoon.
2: With that push to expand beyond the busiest, most metropolitan corners of the country, Scoggin began to alter TGI Fridays reputation.
3: As Stillman created the first singles bar, Scoggins really evolved that into the very first casual family dining restaurant. Didn't exist before, and now it's a whole category into itself and unto itself. It's huge, and it's everywhere. It's in every
2: town in America. It was kind of an accidental evolution into casual family dining restaurant.
1: So one of the things that TGI Fridays begins as part of this pivot to being more of a family-friendly restaurant is they kind of invent singing happy birthday to a customer on their birthday, which lends itself to the way that we think about TGI Fridays today, is that it's friendly and comfortable and a place where you can go to celebrate and have a good time.
2: Friday's new gourmet pizzas are gonna be great, guaranteed. Some, like Nilo Motamed, the global culinary expert, are quick to point out the irony here.
1: I think it's kind of hysterical that TGI Fridays Nowadays, is thought of as a wholesome Middle America restaurant for families to come together.
2: I mean, they have a kids menu. Like it or not, this is not your parents or a grandparents' singles bar.
3: It was almost like it was a like T.J. Fridays itself was a single man, and T.J. Fridays, like a single man, grew up and grew old and grew safe, <laughs> you know? like the man, like the man himself. He got a family, and as he grew. The restaurant grew. So it matured, and it became the thing that it would not have recognized in
2: 1965. At Friday's, it's going to be great, guaranteed. Still, Friday's scratched an itch that Americans didn't know they had. At least, that's what Joanna Saltz, editorial director at Delish.com and House Beautiful, says.
4: TGI Fridays filled a really important void. America had tons of really fancy restaurants, and it also had tons of really super fast, cheap restaurants. But there was this sort of middle space where you wanted to have a nice meal, you didn't want to have to pay a lot, and you wanted to be served somewhat quickly. And so here comes TGI Fridays right in that exact sweet spot. By
2: 1986, TGI Fridays had gone abroad. Scoggin cashed out. So what did he leave behind?
1: Speaking from this time in society, I would say that kind of like fast, casual restaurant is so just ingrained in American society. They're just everywhere. And I find it interesting, like looking back at the history of TGI Fridays that TGI Fridays actually started that entire trend.
2: Looking back, TGI Fridays isn't exactly what Stillman had in mind. In fact, it's not even clear he even met a partner or spouse at his own bar. Still, the place had a significant cultural impact.
1: When I first think of TGI Fridays, I think of just something that's extremely American, and it's my go-to stop at the Hartsfield-Jackson Airport before flight, so it's very familiar, friendly, and easy, I would say.
2: It changed how we mingle, changed how we spend money when we go out, changed how we meet friends, and introduced the idea of casual dining. And people love it.
1: So there's a reason why you really just wanna go to TGI Fridays. It's a friendly, familiar, known place.
2: If you've met a friend or even a romantic partner at a bar recently, if you've shared a couple of potato skins or imbibed a sweet, strong cocktail, if you've ever wondered how you're possibly going to find a place where you can find dinner for a picky eater and a drink for the grown-ups, you know who to thank. Alan Stillman.
4: Americans love a casual dining restaurant. There's nothing like being able to go out to eat for an affordable price with your entire family. There's something on the menu for literally everybody.
2: If you like this podcast, then you'll love watching the Food That Built America TV series on the History Channel. Go to history.com to find out how you can watch the Food That Built America today. The Food That Built America is hosted by me, Jonathan Hirsch. At The History Channel, our executive producers are Jesse Katz, Mary Donahue, and Jim Pascarella. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. From Neonha Media, our executive producer is me. The series is produced by Muna Danish and Kate Mishkin. Our associate producers are Chloe Chobel and Rufaro Faith. Our editor is Maura Waltz. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Alexis Martinez is our podcast coordinator. Sam Baer and Josh Hahn are our mix engineers. Music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound and fact-checking by Naomi Barr. The Food That Built America was originally produced by Lucky 8 TV for The History Channel.
4: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.